0: Oh well, Ed, here's the thing that's also disgusting. Off just this song, I am sure he has earned more than I will in my
1: entire lifetime. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's always kind of one guy in every band that's just sort of there, there for the hang. Right?
2: I think that's why I'm defending him so much because I'm I'm usually that guy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of One Thousand and One Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and lifelong musicians get together to analyze and complain about an album from Robert Dimery's list of One Thousand and One Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Today we will be diving into U2's Octung Baby." Very, very excited. Sure, there's going to be a lot of opinions flying about not only the music, but the band's personalities and choice of nicknames. Never. Never. Excited to get into that. But before we do, I wanted to do a couple things. First, I wanted to issue a quick correction. So I wasn't on the podcast when this got dropped, but I did listen to it. Phil mentioned that Tchaikovsky played violin, (laughs) and I just wanted to be clear that Tchaikovsky did not play a violin. I went and looked
3: it up. What? what uh, wow. When did
1: I say that? You were trying to cite a very good violin player. And I know uh, none of us yeah. are classical music aficionados. I'm not either. Uh, so okay. I went and looked it up because I wanted to be sure. But I want to be correct and, yeah, and learn yeah. things here. But while I was looking that up, I just wanted to mention, I also noticed... And it turns out Tchaikovsky was gay back in czarist Russia. Uh, yeah,
4: rough. Yeah, that must have been Ruff. rough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that must have been fun. part of why these. You have to wonder if throughout
1: <laughs> history people channeled that energy or that repression into into art. Remarkable
4: maybe. music, yeah.
1: So that tells me you two just had a glide path through life, right? <laughs> And uh, since I've been out for a couple of the tapings here, I also want to say that even though I missed the Bjork episode, I did laugh a lot listening to it, and I listened to it on a long plane ride the other day, and then just coincidentally, I watched the movie The Northman, where Bjork has a role in this film, uh, and her role is, wait for it, a hallucinatory blind soothsayer with a weird hat (laughs) on
3: Is that what it says in the credits? So a
1: woodland nymph. (laughs) Or whatever.
3: What what, what was Tom's quote?
2: (laughs) not quite but yeah I'd love to see the audition tapes for this like who else who else did they bring in to compete for, for this part but if you yeah,
1: exactly but if you storyboarded this character Bjork definitely came up in the conference room right away okay so next I want to move on to the the mailbag so I've been out for a couple weeks we've been accumulating some mail I know Adam had that key he's he's passed it on back to me and I've opened up the box and first we have a gentleman called Marillo from Fredericton, Canada. He says thanks for those podcasts and thanks for putting it out on Mondays to help soften the blow of the fresh working week. I was listening to the Elvis episode and when you talked about the album cover, I thought you'd mention that The Clash's London Calling pays homage to it by using the same font and color scheme. Anyways, I have a lot of fun listening even if I'm not familiar with the album. Keep up the good work all right awesome good point i thought we had mentioned that to be honest but it might have been off mic or it might have been on the previous no, we episode mentioned it.
0: yeah we mentioned it in the when it was announced the episode before i ah, trying to figure right. out which album it was and he's like oh no it's the one with the cover that the clash gotcha created. but
1: understandably maybe a little bit conspicuous when you're just listening to us talk about how great the album cover is and then yeah london calling called back to it with another great photograph okay we have one more piece of listener mail here this is jill from tempe arizona She says, love the Aretha Franklin episode, guys. You made me appreciate tambourine playing for perhaps the first time in my life. That's Phil. (laughs) I'm an
3: avid tambourine player? No, no, you're a (laughs) a proponent
1: of the skill involved
2: in
4: playing tambourine. Oof. It is tough.
3: I'm also very against people attending concerts with their own tambourines. (laughs) And I made both those points clear, so I'm a little nervous. True that. True that. (laughs) True that.
1: So Jill goes on, I'm writing in because you all got into a quick discussion on that episode about the term Dr. Feelgood. There's an interesting history. This term was coined first in the 1950s after a specific doctor, a German physician called Max Jacobson, who treated a bunch of American celebrities and administered quote unquote vitamin shots, which were actually methamphetamine. What? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> Patients included people like Marilyn Monroe, Philonius Monk, JFK, and Mickey Mantle. Anyway, after that, Jesus. it became common slang for any doctor who was loose with the prescription pad. Keep up the good work and the good times. I'll be listening.
2: Damn! no wonder if Mickey Mantle hit those like sixty home runs or whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> what a time, by the way. Where,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> let me give him. Let me give uh, the president speed. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you'd like to write in and have your message read out on the air, just send us an email over to 1001 complaints at gmail.com. That's 1001, the number, complaints at gmail.com. We read all your emails. We take them into our hearts. Whether you're complaining about us, correcting us, or giving us accolades, all options are welcome. Okay, we're going to move right into U2's Octung Baby. First, just to orient all of us, let's play a little snippet from the title track to get us into U2's mindset here. The title track is called Zoo Station. That that's over with i'd like to send it around the room and i'd like everyone to introduce themselves and offer a quick tweet length review of octung baby and we're going to send it first over to adam
4: hey everybody this is adam and honestly full disclosure up front i've never listened to an entire U2 album before i'm one of those guys who knows the hits i've had to do some of the hits but anyway it was a, it was a good excuse to dive into an album so here is my quick review dare i say it this album sounds timeless. It's not so produced that it feels of a certain era, but this album is 30 years old and doesn't sound like it. What it does sound like is you 2
1: Fair enough. Let's kick it over to Alan. Same boat Same boat as Adam.
2: I don't know that I've ever listened to one of them, like top to bottom. So take this with a grain of salt, but I do think this is probably their best album in terms of looking at the songs and, and whatnot. Probably their best work. Apparently they credit this though as having saved the band and that without this record there wouldn't have been the next like 30 years of the band if that's the case this album may have done far more harm
1: than good
4: (laughs) (laughs) thought you were going to talk
2: about
1: a time machine (laughs) good call i'm excited to get into the context because i think the the recording and the story behind this record is an interesting one in addition to the music so let's throw it over to phil next
3: yeah, so, this is Phil uh, in this week uh, from America. And uh, yeah, you know, this, I did not have the same experience as Adam or Alan. I received a copy of this record when I was probably. I don't know, probably 13 or 14 years old through a Columbia house or b oh, and yeah. You still owe them, them like of, a thousand you know, bucks bye. at this point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sure I still owe them like, yeah, exactly. You know, this was definitely a trip down memory lane. Some of the rougher songs seemed rougher. Some of the better songs seemed, you know, more timeless. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'll just I'll just stop there.
0: Great, and let's, let's send it on to Tom. I got a, a very succinct tweet-length review for this album.
3: It's all right, it's all right, it's all right.
0: It's just fucking all right. I, I listened to it so many times, and the whole time I was just like, yeah, it's just all right. It's not that great. There's, well, my alternate tweet-length was, well, there's one song that's pretty good. That's my alternate tweet-length review for this album, because... It's not a whole lot going on here. We well, can get so, with nice I, I just want to put this
2: out there. I know Rob hasn't gone yet, but just for the record, saying that this is the best U2 album, I'm
1: not saying it's really good or anything. Let, let's just <laughs> okay. level set here. It sounds like we have some mixed opinions. I, I had a feeling this was going to be a little bit of a contentious one. Here is my tweet-length review of Oxung ah Baby. U2 look to reinvent themselves by following in master reinventor David Bowie's footsteps. So they moved to Hollywood and adhere to a strict diet of whole milk, bell peppers, and cocaine. <laughs> just kidding. They went to work with Brian Eno in Berlin. Okay. This let's let's get right into it here. Cause so this record You
3: know, Rob, before you dive in, I would just like to say I saw Moon Age Daydream over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, the Bowie's the Bowie biopic, yes. it was great. And it really dove in to sort of the artist of Bowie, not more. It was great. So I think everybody would enjoy it.
1: Definitely super interested in seeing that, but haven't haven't had a chance to. Did you see it in the theater, film?
3: Yeah, yeah, I did.
1: Oh, nice. So let's talk about Aksung Baby. It was released November 18th, 1991. If that time in our lives or in music sounds, sounds familiar to you, it's because a lot was happening in the music industry at that time. This is right within a few weeks of albums like Nevermind coming out and 10 and Blood Sugar Sex Magic and Metallica's Black Album, there was a sea change sort of coming. And U2 didn't know that while they were recording the record, but maybe it's worth mentioning that the decade had, had sort of turned over and music was definitely changing. So I'm in the same position as you guys. I had never listened to a U2 record all the way through. I don't really consider myself a fan of the band but in the course of researching the album this week, in addition to listening to Octone Baby, I went back and listened to their other big records, four of which are on Dimery's list, I should mention. Jeez. One is called War, one is called Joshua Tree. Those were the two huge records kind of in the 80s that put them on the map, and they definitely have songs you would recognize, like New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday.
2: What's the fourth record? The
1: 2001 "All That You Leave oh, Behind." Oh come on!
2: Oh yeah.
1: god! We'll Dude, get to that when Let's just stop that. this now and do that one instead, just for the comedy. <laughs> oh,
3: Can we just vote on that one? Now?
5: <laughs>
1: but I just wanted to point out that one of the things I was struck by when I went back and listened to I, I listened to all the records that came before Octune Baby at least once, and I was struck by the fact that I knew way more of their songs than I thought even though I had never sought out listening to you 2 And it's because, really, they've been ubiquitous in our lives. They're in movie trailers. They're in TV shows. They're playing in elevators. They're playing in supermarkets. It's everywhere, whether you like it or not. So they've had an impact. It's, it's sort of undeniable.
3: I have the experience of living. So we have an iPad in our house that has not been updated. It has not had the software updated in a very long time. So the iTunes player includes that that record that was forced that into the player. That they snuck into everybody's iDevice yeah. 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 you know, huge yeah.
1: uh Songs of Innocence, I think it was called maybe.
3: Yeah, yeah. So my uh, Well for
1: those who don't, don't remember, this was a turned out to be a media debacle, but U2 it was a thing where you bought a new device, a new Apple device, and you automatically got this YouTube this new U2 record on there. And it was a marketing gimmick. That just backfired. No one appreciated it at all. So who doesn't want free music? It's like, I don't don't want free that music. This (laughs) music. Right.
3: They they forced it into your phone with an operating system update. So when you got the operating system update, it just showed up in your iTunes.
1: Sinister.
2: You couldn't delete it either, though. That was a thing. Like, they had to make a new feature in the software to allow you to delete it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So... So, so my kids, my kids, this is like one of the few records on the iTunes player on this particular iPad. And my kids, I have two boys and they, uh, they like to blast that record while they fight one. And I don't know what that says about, but they're literally like, I know what we should do. Let's turn on that record and fight. So like, I Dude, don't know what that says. I mean, it, makes me, it does awesome. make me want to
0: punch somebody when I hear that. Music. <laughs> Once the edge gets worked your, up, your Bono's you gotta... voice.
1: Yeah. So look, that was, that was like 10 years after this. I think we got to, to put you two in context, I, I know they're not a popular band in this group, nor are they a popular band in my household. And they do have this aura that we're going to, I'm sure deal with again and again on this in this podcast of douchebaggery. And I think, you know, to a certain extent it's well-earned, but I think it's also a little overstated at times. And I just wanna, let's just keep, let's keep it grounded in 1991 U2, or 1990 U2 when they were recording this. So I did a little buy the numbers here that I thought you guys would find interesting. U2 buy the numbers. They have 175 oh million album sales worldwide. God damn And get it. this, there was a study, a, a Polestar study published in August of this year, 2022. Looking at the last 40 years of total live ticket sales, only two artists in that time period have sold over two billion dollars in total tickets. Yes, <laughs> Springsteen, God.
0: Rolling Stones, and U two. Yeah, I'd go Rolling Stones. Rolling
1: Stones is the other one. Yeah. U two is on is on that list, Jeez. and in fact, U two ranked number one for total tickets. Right, they've sold 26. Point one million tickets in that time and Just to give you an idea some other people that were on that list that you you guys just alluded to Paul McCartney was sitting at number 10 with about 1.2 billion the Eagles Where's
3: Madonna at? She got it to like top three top five. No,
1: no, no, I think she's gone on way fewer tours is the problem Elton John what was that number Elton again Rob? John was number three. What's that? What was What was that number? 22 26 million they sold 26 million tickets in that time. That's more than
0: five times the population of Ireland, by the way, just to get yeah. that out there. They're Everybody huge. in Ireland has seen, uh, has seen U2 three times, four times, five times. Something Dude, like that. I bet you
2: people in, in Ireland actually hate U2
1: more than we do. But anyway. So it's, it's, it's funny you say that. Well, and just to, just to round this out, the looking at the total number of tickets sold during that time period, this brings it back to a little bit more of the music that we are familiar with. Fish is sitting at number 12 with 13.5
3: million. Wow
0: yeah
4: and they that never stop sense. playing and they, they never <laughs> stop playing Correct. never
3: yeah. well that's yeah yeah every concert's too so you could they should be able to double that number
0: <laughs> yeah that's a good point they <laughs> had good no point. opening acts it's just them doing
1: you know well, two of those, hours of music yeah, yeah. some of those concerts have been seven and a half hours long as far yeah. as I can tell yeah. yeah, I think we were at one of those okay well the other thing I think is interesting about you two is that the same four guys have been in this band since its inception back in I don't have a year on me, but something like 1976. And those band members are Larry Mullins on drums, Adam Clayton on bass, who really does not look like he should be in a rock band. He looks like he should be pouring over your taxes. (laughs) A, A fellow called David Howell Evans, a.k.a. The Edge, who plays guitar. And this is where I'm going to point out to you that he was named The Edge by the Lipton Village Surrealist Street Gang, of which Bono was a part. And do you want to guess why he got the name The Edge? Knives. I, I, no. Why? Because he has a pointy head. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why he always wears a hat?
0: <laughs> I think so. It's oh, my so. God.
4: It all comes together. So so whereas, the
0: surrealist wow. street gang, by the way, the least threatening street gang of <laughs> oh all God. time. They just come up to you and be like, everything's an illusion. It's like the Van boys.
5: Freaking <out>
0: squares.
1: <laughs> So whereas Paul David Hewson, a.k.a. Bono, who also got his nickname very early in his life at 14 by that same surrealist street gang, (laughs) his name is short for Bono Vox, which means good good voice. So he got good voice. Edge got pointy head. (laughs) They
5: didn't bother giving
1: the other guys names. I gotta bet by the way, I I like that
0: there were two other, I guess, sort of founding members, Dick Evans and Ivan McCormick, who both left very early on in the band. Those guys must just be kicking themselves every effing day. Like I could have how much money now?
1: Right. And you not even really have to be that talented. One of those guys is the Edge's brother. (laughs) Dick Evans is the is the Edge's brother. Oof. so he was originally in the very very early days of the band he was in the band but by the time they released their first record it's been these four and it's been these four the entire time which you have to admit is just kind of impressive that is impressive in general i mean
4: you look at the some of those other bands that we've talked about and they all have the gantt charts of like their 40 year span and there's like the different eras of members and they have a total of 30 members and iron maiden and stuff and these
0: guys have legit just four that's saying something counterpoint to the impressiveness of that this album came out in 1991 they've been playing music professionally since 1976 and they're still not very good at their instruments I don't know about not very good
2: yeah I I, I, I think there's they're they get the job done and I think if you if you turn off and they even do this in that movie or the uh, film with Jimmy Page and um, Jack White I forget what it's called it's called it might get loud thank you where the edge sort of turns off his effects and is just playing a couple notes when you hear that it's pretty rudimentary but i think i think he's a a great guitar player i think he's like a great stylist and i do think the other guys are are pretty solid but you don't need much more than than solid i think to be in this band
3: they have a great like band sound but i guess tom your point is that like none of them are particularly
4: Virtuistic,
3: yeah, virtue, yeah, yeah. but that's not for what sure. makes a good I, that's band, true. right? I yeah, think I, the fact I agree. Like
1: agreed. between the edges, guitar tone, you can not like it if you want, but it is definitely iconic. He, 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 he eked out an area for himself, and I think Bono's voice is kind of similar, and I think they play off each other quite a bit. They locked into a sound, so you either like that sound or you don't, and that kind of defines how you feel about the band in a lot of ways. But clearly, spoke to a lot of people—twenty-six million or so.
0: No, it certainly did. I'm yeah. going to use this uh, a lot of my microphone time on this episode to specifically talk shit on Adam Clayton because he is a hack and he's not a good bass <laughs> player.
2: I, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, define not good. Like what, what's your what's your criteria for not good?
0: Bass challenge. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> I would say he is uninventive. Uh, I would say that most of his bass lines are root note. A root note, eighth notes. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Not interesting. And I don't. I get it, not everything has to be Jocko Pistorius virtuistic, but he really locks into just one incredibly simple bass line and plays it for most of the song, and you'll even notice they know it because they mix it super low for a lot of these songs. It's kind of hard to hear the bass. Well, how many of those
2: 25 million ticket holders give a fuck <laughs> about the bass not changing
0: <laughs> i mean if you if you if your uh if your thesis is a lot of people like it so it must be good then i think no no <laughs> it's it's not what i guess my point is it
2: it moves the band like i think it's okay to like i think there is i've i've gotten more comfortable with the idea that there is skill in the simplicity so
1: anyway we'll 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 spare people the bass corner <laughs> well, let's talk about it in the, in the context of some of the tunes when we get there. But I wanted one more bit of table setting here about the production, about the, where the band was at. So the situation was, they had this kind of meteoric rise to stardom, to international stardom. Coming, they had a slew of hit records. You know, they started out as this Irish phenom band. They went to America and they effectively conquered America in the 80s with some of those hits we mentioned previously, pride in the name of love and new year's day. And there's some other ones, I'm sure Sunday, bloody Sunday, "Sunday bloody Sunday. Still haven't
0: found what I'm looking for. Exactly.
1: All those with or without you, right? They had some major, major hits. And then they made an interesting career turn, which they said, let's produce a documentary and let's get back to our roots. Let's do American roots music. We're an Irish band. We don't know that. We like the blues. We don't know that much about it. And they produced this documentary, and an album that goes with it called "Rattle and Hum," that is half concert documentary and interviews, and and half of the album is live uh, material, and half of the album is new studio material, and it is met with a resounding meh. <laughs> <laughs> and they come off in this documentary as megal, you know, as as hyped up as you assholes. Too. <laughs> well, here's what's funny though: is is so.
2: I kept reading about, in looking into this album, there, I kept seeing references to their, like, the era of them being pompous douchebags. And I was like, which era are they referring to? Like, <laughs> is it before where they were very self serious and self righteous, or the 30 years following where it was just clear, you know, commercialized cash grabs?
1: <laughs> this is what I've been thinking about all week. I don't really see how. I'm only referring to this first 15 years of U2's career. I'm not talking about what comes after. I don't see where that persona comes from, other than the fact that they come off as, they're purposely trying to be very sincere. In fact, I wrote down one of my notes, "is this is sincerity porn, or at least a lot of the old U2 is. Bono is this very earnest personality, and... I don't know him personally, clearly, but by all accounts, he has actually done quite a lot for world charity. He's started foundations. He's given millions, raised millions more to fight. You know, I understand that he's thought of. It's like a de facto response to say, oh, Bono's a, a douche. But like seriously, where is that coming from? You have to admit at least that it would be hard to ride this line of every, being that popular and being able to tour and do these stadium shows at a pretty young age. And then wanting to use that platform for some kind of good in the world, which seems pretty reasonable, right? And not coming off that way.
4: My wife challenged me on this point today too. It's that why why do you not like him? And I'm like I don't. I, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's it's kind of cool to fall in the I hate Bono bandwagon. But truthfully, like I don't know any of the stuff that makes him a douche aside from wearing those goddamn glasses everywhere Wait, indoors. I gotta, say it. I, gotta yeah. say
1: it. I found out about the glasses. Oh, okay. He has gla- severe glaucoma, and he honestly his eyes are extremely sensitive to bright light, and that is why he wears sunglasses everywhere. Now, all right.
4: Well, now I feel like a dick. All right. Now the choice of sunglass style is still douchey. To be <laughs> all right. Clear. All right. Thank you. Give me that. But yeah, I, I didn't have a good answer. She's like, you know, he gives like, you know, he's given like a hundred million dollars to all these charities.
0: He's like, what have you done? I was like, nothing. All right, I'll shut up. I think it definitely comes from the early days where they were writing some of those more irish like fiercely irish uh nationalistic type of songs too and trying to be like you know when you're having interviews and you're sort of saying like you have to look at the message of my music i'm really trying to get something across it can just not delivered well can come off poorly, but I, Rob, I will agree with you. The man has raised obscene amounts of money for all kinds of charitable causes, and has been doing it pretty consistently since like the mid '80s. When he could have just been like a Coke rock star, woo, and you know having right. a great time banging supermodels. Maybe he was yeah. doing that too, but uh, really <laughs> at least he was using some of that
1: Coke energy <laughs> to raise some money for the downtrodden. So look, they they may be jerks in real life. It is possible, but I tend to I just would prefer to judge people on their actions. And he's he's out there trying. Well, I think it's even simpler stuff. though.
2: I, I think he's a huge target. Like he he's so ubiquitous. He's so he's so everywhere. And I also do think there's an aspect. A lot of people probably don't even know this, but I, I think that people are aware of his like some of his sort of like shady business practices or like ta- things like tax evasion. And uh, I'm not,
3: please tell me. Yeah.
2: Apparently they, Rob probably read the memoir or some shit and has more <laughs> information than I do, but apparently they had some kind of like uh weird accounting where they were able to sort of like not pay millions of dollars in taxes at one point, but he also Bono and maybe it's some holding company that he has is, was one of the main investors in Facebook, I think. So when, that IPO happened. I think his like organization just basically got like two billion dollars or some shit. Which, to be fair, he's probably reinvested a lot of that in, or or re, uh, you know, allocated that in his philanthropy. But, um, you know, I think there's those aspects too. I, for me, it, it's more musical. For me, like I'm always skeptical of the guys who just sing, don't really play anything. I'm unsure of what their contribution is to like the structure of the song. I know he writes the lyrics, which I find are pretty pedestrian. So to me, it's more around the great voice, obviously great presence, but like, is there any there, there musically?
1: Okay. We're going to get into that very shortly, but so one more piece, right? They have that experience of releasing that documentary after feeling like they're on top of the world. The fans and the critics are like, you guys are pompous assholes and they are in there the band is in disarray so someone mentioned this earlier that the band sort of almost broke up they were on the verge of breaking up they, they took a long break they decided to come back together but they didn't want to do their normal process they were looking for something new they were looking for a new producer a new locale to be in and so they end up deciding to go work with both brian eno and daniel lanois over in berlin now keep in mind this is less than a year after the Berlin Wall has come down. Right.
4: And they are yeah, literally
1: okay. working at the studio that is within 100 yards of said wall. The same one where Bowie recorded Heroes and was referring to the wall that he was looking at you know, like while he was recording. In case those don't know, I think this is one of the most interesting things about this record is the, these producers. Because these are two heavyweights of really interesting production. And Lenoir, I think, was kind of... I didn't read this directly, but you get the inference that he was a almost like a disciple of Brian Eno, who then went off and did a bunch more stuff. So some of Eno's biggest career hits would be Talking Heads, like Fear of Music, Remain in Light, the entire Bowie Berlin trilogy, which is Heroes, Low and Lodger. And some Are of Lanois. What was his
3: band too? Eno's band was Roxy Music. Yeah, Roxy.
1: And then Lanois made the, I think the group's favorite Willie Nelson record, Teatro. Uh, he also worked with Bob Dylan on Time Out of Mind. Anyway, so these guys are really interesting. And as a counterpoint, I'm, we haven't, I don't think we've done anything by these guys yet. They're a real counterpoint to what I think of, having not worked with any of these people, at, to the Rick Rubin method, which is they're very into breaking things down, getting you very abstract. So Eno, for instance, is, is the guy who... Uh, work to create those Oblique Strategies cards, which is like a deck of cards that are supposed to get you out of blockages in your creative process by expressing abstract ideas. So some examples of things that you would pull out of that deck to try to get you through some kind of block in the creative process would be cards that say things like emphasize the flaws, abandon normal instruments, and convert a melodic element into a rhythmic element. And I think that, whereas I think Rick Rubin, at least as we've guesstimated, is more about trying to get to the essence of the band itself and let them be them. Eno is kind of about reinvention. He helped Bowie reinvent himself. He's trying to help you two reinvent himself themselves.
0: I, I will say, though, as like a counterpoint, though, that they wanted to Try something new. Like both Lanois and Eno worked on the Joshua Tree. So I kind of looked at it more like they were going back to what they knew was a successful formula of let's work with these guys
1: because they helped us put out the last good album that we had. Yeah, maybe, but I got the impression Eno wasn't really a big part of Joshua Tree. I think he kind of was brought in at the end. And it's, I'm bringing up Eno because I find Eno interesting, but to be fair, I think Daniel Lanois deserves most of the credit for production on this album. My understanding of how Eno was involved in this process, and so this may have been similar in his involvement in any of the tracks on Joshua Tree, was that he would leave for like months at a time and then come back and be kind of a third-party perspective and be like, this is trash, throw this away, keep working on this. I could do that. <laughs> you What's know, you know, interesting about that, you know,
3: you know, hopefully we, we talk about Teatro at a later date, I'm sure it's not on the list. Uh, but uh, Lenoir wound up taking that approach with Willie Nelson, but not with the band. He brought the, you know, we don't have to go off into this aside, but same sort of thing, Rob, right? Where instead of, he would send Willie Nelson out, he would rehearse the band. And then he'd bring Willie in for a take or two. Then he'd send him back out. He wanted Willie Nelson really fresh, right? But also wanted these live takes, which will be a theme here, right? He wants the, the recordings to sound live and like big, right? So...
1: Right. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess it's just worth noting that U2 was trying to reinvent their sound and we can discuss whether they were successful with that or not, because I think a lot of their U2-ness shines through. But I do hear a lot of experimentation on this record. And it's interesting that some of the experimentation ultimately, you know, made made for some big hits. So I would love to then segue into talking about the biggest hit, perhaps in U2's career. And it's track three on this record. It's a song called One.
3: Is it
5: getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you? To blame? you're and one love, one life. When it's one need in the night, one love we get to share it leaves you, baby.
1: Let me just, I want to hear you guys' thoughts on this song, but I want to use this as a quick mention of a callback to what Alan said about what Bono's contribution is and their process, which I thought was really interesting because I watched a little documentary about the making of this. Did not read a memoir this week. Sorry, guys.
4: I didn't know <laughs> if I could kind of make a
1: full memoir of The Edge. Oh, God. <laughs> so, as I was, I, I just have to admit that before I knew about their process, I was listening through the first couple times and I was thinking damn, this band really knows how to mesh with their lead singer. There is a synergy going on with the instruments, how they, they're they able to craft stuff that really works for his voice. It's written by the bass player. And in that way, I think Bono is a very sophisticated singer and songwriter because he knows where he needs to be to be successful. There are some exceptions to that on this record, but I'm just saying generally on the hits. But what's interesting is that you watch the tape. It was almost like the Get Back tape. They What they do to create a lot of these songs is they improvise a lot as a live band. And so this song, literally, they have tape of it coming together. And what's happening is Edge is just playing through this chord progression on an acoustic guitar. The other band members kind of pick up. And Bono walks in the room and just goes, repeat that. And then he starts vamping melodies over it. And not only is he vamping melodies and starting to just put insert nonsense words in there, and you hear the melody starting to come together as they're looping it, he's telling Edge, oh, go to a C there instead of a G. Oh, now go to a D. Serving the melody that he has in his head, I thought it was pretty cool. I'd never seen anything like that, where he's like literally telling him in real time which chord to change to to suit the melody that where he wants the melody to go. And that's literally how this song came together. That's interesting.
2: I I didn't realize that he was contributing to that effect because I wasn't sure what his like musical background even was. Like I had read that he maybe learned piano like at, at when he was like fifty or something, so it wasn't. Something he grew up in so um but that makes sense i uh yeah I think it's i mean it's a really really good song I don't, I don't I don't think that's like in dispute maybe it is but I think it's a great song
3: yeah i i this this song like it this song crushes me like every time you know i mean I think part of the the question of like do you need to listen to this record really comes down to the reality that like you've probably heard this song. I think this song is unavoidable on planet Earth, you know. Like, if you haven't heard this song, you should like have a drink and like think about something that like makes you feel a little sad or forlorn or angry, and then listen to this song and it will just destroy you, right? Like, and and I I, rege- I reject the idea that the Johnny Cash version is better. That's a Matt garbage opinion. Shit. This is this yeah. This is this. It is good. this Here,
2: my only. The only thing I have yeah. <laughs> garbage opinion. <laughs> so yeah, I agree. I think it's a great song, but I do feel like it's kinda of out of place on this album though. Did anyone else feel like that? Because it's,
3: it's I feel like the rest of the record is very
2: like electro, Euro, you know, kraut or whatever. But I feel like it's out of place. And I do think some of the lyrics are a little lame, like sisters brothers yeah, sister, eh. but great song
0: overall yeah
3: yeah yeah, that's a good point
0: now this is this is a very good song I got no complaints about the song I think that you know I do have the note that it's you know like first generation AI bot baseline generator <laughs> again um,
5: <laughs> and
0: you know when you're talking about it being a more spontaneous process I think that the songs where that happens, you can kind of tell who is a little bit more with it than the other ones. It might have been the fact that Adam Clayton was apparently at this time a raging alcoholic, and uh, like on the tour it it became simple. a huge yeah. problem for him. <laughs> um, so again, I I'm not the biggest fan of this band in general, but this is a great song. My favorite part of the song is the freaking tambourine over the course. It just comes in like. Yeah. A tch- and then it drops out. It's my favorite part of the song. It just gives us this nice little extra layer to it.
4: This is a really well produced song as well. I I had never listened to it totally. on on good ear or good, good headphones. Again, I've been hearing this song for thirty years, and I I discovered some new things listening in, listening to it with good headphones this week. There's like some tom fills in there that are are in the left channel which is kind of nice the tom fills by the way that should be like a segment on the show it's the tom (laughs) fill um dork the leslie on the electric guitar is really nice as well and some of the lyrics are lame but there's the one line that that has always stuck out in my head was have you come to play jesus to the lepers in your head that is just fantastic Biblical imagery there—it's that's that's just fantastic. So well well done, gentlemen, on this tune.
1: I think he has some good—he gets off some good lyrics. They're not all amazing, but yeah, I like that one. I've always read that line Adam as a little acknowledgement of the pomposity of being a rock star in the spotlight. Uh, you know, a little bit directed back at himself. But I like that you ask me to enter and then you make me crawl. I think he gets some good lines off, and yeah, we all said it, but I have to agree. It's not only a well-composed song, which I just described kind of how it was composed, but then they worked this production quite a bit. So the story goes that they put together a version of this. This was like the first song in the sessions that they kind of cracked open. It made them feel like they were actually doing something good and that they should continue to be a band. And up to that point, it was getting pretty pretty dire. Because they went to Berlin, they thought it would be, I heard Bono say, they thought it would be more celebratory, like they went out into, into the streets of Berlin, and they were hoping to find like a celebration, you know, because they're, they're Irish, they're trying to go drink, obviously, of, you know, the wall coming down and freedom, and they, they happen upon this big group of celebration, and they're like hanging out, and they're like, this seems a little grim. And it turns out it was a protest to put the wall back up. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> of course
1: it was. <laughs> so then they tell the story that they did a version of this song. You know, they, they, they got the bones of it in the way that I said, the Im- improvised way. Then they did an arrangement and a production of it. Then Eno kind of comes back into town, listens to it, and it's like, song's good, but the rest is boring me to tears. Like, you need to start all over again, basically. So they, I think they just worked the hell out of this one, and I think it shows. You get a lot of interesting guitar tones Adam mentioned. I think you have... Eno is credited with playing keyboards on this. I saw a video of him hitting, like, a weird echoey chime piano thing.
3: Yeah, it kind of sounds like there's, like, a Mellotron or something. It's kind of, like, tucked in, you know, but it's in there. It's, like, a counterpoint sort of melody.
1: I think Lanois has a guitar credit on it, too. Like, it's got a lot going on, and so I think they sense that it was a good enough song to really work sort of to death. And it, it does, shows yeah, in a it, good way. It
3: does have, like, the real hardcore, like, uh, you know, it's it, like you said, it's really worked. Right, and it feels really balanced in the mix, like in the way those like old Beatles and you know like classic.
0: I wonder with that additional guitar credit for Lanois, because I I really like that super simple counter melody on the guitar that like, over the varying that. I wonder if that is Lanois or if that's the edge, and uh, it's it's got a bit of the edge sound to it, but the edge sound is effects. It's not
1: necessarily. I think this is actually one of the people I want to give credit to on this record generally is The Edge. I think I hear The Edge going more out of his box than almost anyone. Again, I'm not a U2 aficionado, but given that he's so known for a certain tone and effects setup, you hear a lot of new and weird tones on this, and I think that's him branching out. Now, I don't know for sure which part is Lanois, but I did see that video. I saw a video of him playing a more rhythm-y sounding part, but you know who knows?
3: something i came across in the past but i want to share this week you know we can we can add it in the sort of write-up or not this is just a fun thing about this song i shared it in the chat here yeah you guys can watch it now or later we can edit this out if you'd like this is chris cornell performing this song
0: oh that's a good version
3: yeah but it's not the lyrics to the song it's the lyrics to metallica's one which line up freakishly, interestingly, with the sort of melody arc. Um, And I just think it's worth a, a listen and is a nice fun aside to, like, the history of U2's one.
0: Yeah, fun aside, where he replaces the lyrics with wartime tragedy. The guy who famously killed himself, you know, like, fun, fun aside. But, yeah. I read that book, by the way. It was fucking, <laughs> a fucking dark. Book. Johnny got is his that gun. Is Johnny yeah. Get your gun or Johnny got his gun yeah. yeah. I read it in high
2: school too. I think I still have some PTSD.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty raw. Okay, are we ready to move on to the next tune? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, let's play a snippet from the next song on our focus list, which is called "Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses."
5: You're i
3: back to Columbia house man right back to those this is your your tune I don't want to say it was my tune I'm just saying I definitely remember this from being like tethered to a CD player right like listening to it at like 10 o'clock at night the beginning sort of the sounds sort of remind me of the sort of thing you'd see later here later on like Flaming Lips records or even like the air record we reviewed right just those sort of out there space sounds before the drums drop. But that's
2: not in the in the video version, which is the only version I really knew. I mean, there's the radio, but they probably cut this out too. But when I listened sure. to it here,
3: sure. I mean, it's like there's a solid
2: 40. Yeah, seconds. I kind of like that. I thought it was like really yeah. sort of it like slapped me awake a little bit. So, it, I, they're probably cutting that for the to make it more palatable for the uh the average joe. But um I don't know. I, I Upon re-listening to the song, I don't get what everyone liked so much about the song. Like, it didn't feel that singly to me. I don't know. It seems like it really didn't do much for me.
1: I like it. It's my favorite song on the record. Really? Yes. And I think there's a couple things. I think that one, I think that bed of distortion that we're talking about is very un-U2. So for that reason, I kind of like it. Even though what Bono's doing is sort of very U2. But I think it's a slightly more understated version of his normal game, and so I, I think I like it pretty well. But I see a really clear connection between what's going on in a song like this and later bands like Arcade Fire and The National, like bands I like. Yeah, that kinda, Cole,
3: I, I, I get major Coldplay vibes here.
1: Cold, yeah, Coldplay's another one, which yeah, is I'm sort not of not sure that's a bit of musical sin, want to but, go down but, here. but but listen, it's like. These guys are in the business of making stadium rock, all the people we're talking about. And U2 makes stadium rock and they kind of made it from day one. There's something a little interesting about that. And they sort of you know they know they're gonna be playing stadiums on this tour, so they keep writing stadium rock songs. Well, they have a huge sound. Their sound is absolutely huge.
3: Well, this is an interesting thing, right? This is actually not a U2 topic, but you know, maybe just a music in general topic, like I think there's a reason. Maybe we've talked about this before, but like, there's a reason jazz doesn't get played in stadiums. And it's like you just can't play that many notes in a space that echoes like that. And in a weird way, like U2 is 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 building a sound that they'll probably they probably are stripping away some of that echo live. They can sort of let the space do it, right? And it's just interesting, right, that certain bands scale up, right, and and certain sounds don't. Right? This is very interesting. I think U2, to their credit, sort of big time took advantage of that, and leaned into that big time.
0: Yeah, Maybe it's the fact that I'd never listened to U2 growing up. Certainly never intentionally. I mean, I heard some of their hits off of some of their earlier albums. I have zero nostalgia for this album at all. I never listened to this album. I think this song is obscenely boring. I gotta be honest. Like, my note is, start slow and then rockets right to the middle. What They said that they had this was the one that they had a demo version of it. And then they tried to do a bunch of different versions of it. And they eventually just went back to the demo version of it. And I feel like you can kind of tell that. And listen, I'm not a guy that says you can't have haze and shalas in there. But I think that there's a reason why nobody does that in the pre course because it's not good. That hey, hey, shalala <laughs> for your pre course, it's not the same as if you're doing it in a course. It seems like it was a placeholder that he was supposed to go back and write lyrics for, and then never did write the lyrics for it. And it just got stuck in there because they went back to the original demo version. And th- this could show why,
4: uh, or, or maybe this shows how unlistened to for U2 uh, uh, that I am, is that this to me kind of sounds like the, the quintessential U2 song. And it could be that just moving forward everything in the next 30 years from this song sounds like this, but it's, Big distorted, not, I'm sorry, not distorted, big delay guitars, some pads in the background. And one thing I noticed that, that I'm starting to pick out in some of these stadium rocky tunes virtually no snare. Everything is Tom's while he's singing. Yeah, like yeah, really they never come yeah. in and land on us. Dum, dum, crack, dun, dum, crack. Like everything is low while he sings, which technique. is great. <laughs> It's 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 great for the for the vocals to soar and to stand out in front. But this was like the most quintessential U two song I could pick out on this album, as to what I think of when I think of U two. This
3: is definitely I think is a really cool song. I definitely do have nostalgia for this record, and it it makes sort of commenting on it I think difficult for me uh, in a lot of ways. But yeah, this is very milk toast type two, right? Like there's like milk toast type one, which is that like dotted eighth delight mm-hmm. right and this is milk test type two like, well i want is, yeah. i
4: wanted to ask rob or tom if the lyrics mean anything <laughs> not that i don't trust <laughs> alan and phil they, they don't but they don't. i know that you guys are are, are you guys are my english majors i
0: was not an english I, major by the way i'm major no. in neuroscience he's just a nerd i was an english major no. but that doesn't mean i know what the lyrics
5: mean <laughs> alan was it also yeah.
4: well now i've lost respect for everyone how did not <laughs> No, when I wrote down, the deeper I spin, the hunter will sin for your ivory skin, took a drive in the dirty rain to a place where the wind calls your name. It just kind of felt like, you know, I don't know, high, high school uh, attempts at, at deep rock lyrics. Eh.
3: It does sound like stream of consciousness that you should have gone back and cleaned up. <laughs> just Jack
1: Kerrack. <laughs> <laughs> You can pick that out of almost any... I, mean, I, know, listen, I I'm get not it. Gonna, I'm not here to tell you why Bono is the most amazing lyricist, but I think these lyrics are overall pretty good. I think he gets off some good lines. You're dangerous because you're honest. Yeah. You left my heart empty as a vacant lot for any spirit to haunt. It's a good little slant rhyme there. Like, he's got a process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always pay off, but I, and I think the melody here is really what I'm responding to. Personally. I mean, I like
3: this song. I mean, I'm making fun of it, but... I,
0: yeah, I, Yeah, listen, I would say lyrically he's got strikes and gutters. I think that he's got a wide range of strikes and gutters. Like his strikes are usually pretty darn good and his gutters are usually pretty darn bad. I just can't get over the pre-chorus. I really think that they (laughs) they should have just – I think he was supposed to write lyrics for that. Silence would have (laughs) –
2: yeah. I think a lot of groups actually do that though. Like I I don't know if it's just – it's not laziness, but I think it's more of a, "Eh, I kind of like it. Like I listened to – actually, Tom, you turned me on to that podcast song, Exploder, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. They did one with a guy from War on Drugs, and there's a line in one of the songs that he does where it's just him going like, "Oh well, yeah, And he's like, "There's no words, like on the lyric sheet. I don't even know what's on because I just didn't feel like finishing that part, so maybe it's intentional.
0: Or like it could be, it could be solid gold, like in a, "What Sweet Child of Mine," where Axl Rose is saying famously, "Where do we go now?" Because he doesn't actually know where the song goes, and that's not like a lyric that he wrote. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> and then he's like, <laughs> "This actually
0: works really well." We're just going to keep that in that. Awesome.
1: <laughs> nice. Okay, let's keep it rolling along here. Next song on the focus list, another huge hit for the band, "Mysterious Ways."
0: lives and dies on the dis- distortion riff on that guitar tone at the beginning it it Catches you very well. Like, this is a good song. I know I've been complaining about you two a lot. This is a good song. I've been complaining about Adam Clayton, Clayton a lot, and I'm going to continue to complain about Adam Clayton. This is, this is a good little, like, four-note bass thing that he does, but that's all that he wrote. And then he just leaves it. He doesn't play for half of the song, and that's the best parts of the song. Hopefully he doesn't get, like, a, a, a equal cut as uh, The Edge. And,
2: and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I actually really like the song. This is... When, when I, it's funny, this album in general, when I have reflected on, like when I knew we were doing this, I thought, okay, what are the, you, what are the YouTube songs that I know and like? And the ones that came up generally fell on this album. There weren't many, but this was one of them where I think, you know, that little wah thing at the beginning is very iconic. It's, it's super cool. There's actually you in
4: the chorus. Wah-wah. the I do. I think it's oh, no. a phaser and a wah or an auto wah.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, something like that. I got a phaser, a vibe on that.
2: Yeah, I don't know, but I do think, like many of the songs on here, it's <laughs> kind of bloated. Like, it's, you could easily sh- lop off two minutes and get
1: the desired effect. But, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a cool song. So I think this is the one where you could argue it's the biggest success because it's the biggest departure from their quote-unquote normal U2 sound it's much grungier and heavier Bono's not exactly doing his Bono thing he's trying some you know there's a more of a vocal build but he doesn't go super big in the chorus Exact, you know it's just well, and, it's different and I think there's some interesting production here too yeah
3: I mean in an interesting way it's like you know I don't know who worked on this like I don't know if Eno worked on this closely but there's a bit of like a page out of the the Talking Heads playbook here, right? Especially during the verse, it's super percussion heavy, even a little like world music vibe, but some of just like the mm-hmm. sound quality of the choices, not really like world rhythms, but like just the sounds of the percussion.
1: Well, those were some of the, the things they were trying to emulate, it was more more like club music or dance music, drum machine. They would demo some of these songs on drum machine and they would put in a lot of things. And I think you hear that, that percussive element you're referring to even within the guitars and you hear it on the Talking Heads recordings too, that there's just a lot of like interlocking parts that make up one extended riff seemingly, but they're, they're played on different guitars with different tones going on and, and things like that. And I noted too, that there was a fair amount of vocal production stuff on this one in particular for a guy like Bono, who's so thoroughly associated with just this big belted chorus with reverb on it. There's, they do some interesting stuff. Like one of the things I took note of was that right after the "If You Want to Kiss the Sky" part, during that part, there's a little selective falsetto octave above himself on there. There's just like a lot, a lot of little tidbits like that in in this song.
3: Yeah, it's hip. It's cool. It's like it, it makes sense. It's a radio sensation. Yeah,
4: it's a radio sensation for a reason. I love this tune. That the guitar tone to me is. is not necessarily career defining because i know that he's got he's got his own kind of delay he's got his own vibe but the the guitar tone at this opening chord it sounds like the guitar is taking a bite out of you like physically like the the wah-wah mixed in there it grabs you it bites you and It's it's like enveloping yes it's totally badass and the uh the bass doesn't come in until i think like the second verse so there's a lot of really cool dynamics in there uh, the bass it almost sounds like it's a synth bass like there's zero tone on it tom and you're right it's it's very simple he just, but
0: there's no that's it it's yeah. all even yeah. when the band changes chords his bass doesn't change with the like <laughs> it goes to different parts and he just stops playing and then he comes back in with that same bass line again and it's a, it's a cool little bass you know, a couple of notes, but I, I actually marked down all of the times where it comes in and comes out in the song. So I could get exactly it's it plays for two minutes and 22 <laughs> seconds of this song. So how, how much is that it, that he's earned in total per
2: second? Of- Half royalties <laughs> right, okay, for seriously. a four minute song. Right.
0: Oh, well, here's the thing that's also discussing off just this song. I'm sure he has earned more than I will in my entire lifetime. So
1: There's always kind of one guy in every band that's just sort of there. There for the hang. Right? I think that's why I'm
0: defending
2: him so much because I'm I'm usually that guy.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Alan's Yo, in the he's back.
4: A, he's contributing. No, he's contributing, man. He's he's helping. He's he's good. He buys all the beer for band practice.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> because it's not that I think the drummer in u two is so crazy. We haven't really mentioned his playing yet. Although I think one of the songs is a good showcase for him later in the focus list. But what jumps out to me is he has that iconic drum beat at the beginning of Sunday Bloody Sunday. Oh, yeah. It's like one of the only ones where you can identify the song. Ba- I mean, your average listener can identify the song based on the drum beat. I like again, I I when I said
0: last week that I thought that I was going to have to vote this album on the list, I think I was conflating a lot of the songs from Joshua Tree with this album um, just that era, I guess, all blended together. Because I didn't again. It was all radio listens for me. It, I it never saw this out. It would be out. very
3: easy to blend Joshua Tree and War into sort of just one super hit they list sound in your mind. Very similar, yeah. yeah. And and you know, if you jettisoned all the bad songs, just there's just like the the nine or ten best songs off those two records. I mean. That's a They had a slew of hits. If you just look
1: through their catalog, it's not just those two records, though. They had a major hit on every. This is like their sixth or seventh record or something. And they've had like a major hit on every single recording. There's
3: some story about like the police's last gig and the police like literally handing their instruments to U2 for the encore. And I think they play All Things Must Pass. It's at like Live Aid. UK or something, but it's like they were literally the biggest band in the world, right? Like they were anointed by the previous biggest band right, in the world right. live yeah. on stage like a fucking WWF wrestler <laughs> or something. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and the numbers seem to bear that out. Okay, let's keep it rolling. Now it's gonna take a turn, I think. <laughs> Next song on the focus list, The Fly.
5: Okay. <laughs> If say a secret or something You tell one another person So I'm telling you
1: Okay. I just want to point out that this was the first single they released. <laughs> I do. I don't know what they This were is thinking. how you
2: want to reintroduce yourself to the world as this like <laughs> transformed band. But I, I do remember actually, this is when I started kind of watching MTV a lot more when I was a kid. Yes, I was, you know, 11 at the time. But I remember thinking, like, how is this the. I I don't know. I didn't find really anything redeeming about it at all. It feels just nothing
3: yeah
1: boring distorted rock music yeah easy to ignore is what i wrote it's not it's not even so terrible as to be noteworthy
4: (laughs) well a tribe called quests the low-end theory came out i think a a month prior and you can definitely hear the (laughs) hip-hop influence on these drums in this song (laughs) which is what i read in wikipedia what it said Hang on. The rhythm section is more pronounced on Octon Baby, and hip hop inspired electronic dance beats are featured on many of the album's tracks, most prominently The Fly. Is this the same song that we're talking about? Because this just sounds, sounds like an like edit a is rock in order beat. for the Wikipedia. Uh, right. <laughs> I might try to log in. <laughs> My, uh...
3: I mean, Adam, Adam, if you listen closely, panned left. Is what I thought was the metronome, but I guess it could be like an eight oh eight click. Maybe that's what
5: it is. There,
1: by the way, there's so much finger noise on this guitar track. Like if you happen to be, I'm surprised Adam hasn't brought I'm that up with his you can speaker tell. system. I,
3: I, I thought literally everything except the drums was pushed through the flanger. Literally the whole thing the entire away. mix is yeah, just real It's play. like drums put everything else in the flanger. <laughs>
1: It's it reminded me a little bit, because you guys were talking about on the Bjork episode her different vocal approaches. This is Bono trying other vocal approaches, the high falsetto, the sultry low, and it's not working.
2: Well, and even the character that he kind of came up with for this with the big sort of sunglasses and you know trying to do the
0: it, it's just all it was all so lame. That falsetto is so bad and not just like it sounds bad in the song and doesn't fit, it's not even delivered well. He doesn't deliver the falsetto well, it <laughs> sounds weird and
1: like super <laughs> nasally. And I, uh, yeah, it was very off putting. The one thing I said I liked was I kind of like the guitar tone in the song,
3: to- uh, totally. right around like two and a half, yes,
1: minutes. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Two- 225. Yeah, totally. It sounds like you could, like, cool yeah, t- 90s cut in tone.
3: It's like you could like drink beers and and, and and smoke bones with the edge and like everything would be fine you know he'd jam out he'd fit in just right you well know.
4: and this the the, <laughs> the riff is so mediocre but if you have if you had the guy from mars volta like screaming over this this might rock but bono is not the guy to elevate this riff to a a good rock song so definite miss here
1: they had one And they had Mysterious Ways, and they released this. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Just my obligatory let's shit on Adam Clayton one more time. Um, My note on (laughs) here is that this bass line is entirely root eighth notes. I would have been been embarrassed to put this little work into a bass (laughs) line in high school. Like when I was in high school, I've been like, "This is a little, this is a little too little for me. I got, I should put a little bit more into this."
2: Like. I'll, I'll, I'll join you on that, Tom. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. you, you got to add something, or
0: or else why even have a human? Like, why I even like have bass? a human? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> certainly. Why have a guy getting twenty five percent cut from the material playing bass on this one?
5: <laughs> but he has
0: a signature Fender bass, which is pretty sick. It's like the
2: Adam Clayton. It's like this jazz bass that that's his contribution i think
1: (laughs) all right let's keep it rolling along here to the last song we're going to talk about today acrobat hits on this record i wanted to include one that i thought sounded pretty cool but also was more experimental and not a hit and so that that that's my take on this one i think it's not bad it's not great either but it's not bad
0: i i i took it as this my, my note on this is this could have been so much better if the musicians were better. Specifically, the drums and bass could have been a lot more of a layered bedrock for a guitar experimentation on top of this. Um, I just felt like they were doing pretty basic, like just holding it down as opposed to something that was a little bit more interesting. Again, you get like the drummer from Mars, Mars Volta and Flea. And not everybody has to be Flea. Not everybody has to be a ripper. But like this didn't seem like it was the work of like guys who are comfortable treading in these waters. I could tell it was a little bit more out of their wheelhouse and experimental.
1: Right. And that's what they they were, they were pushing themselves to do that. But that, that is fair. It is. It's in like a weird time signature, right? It's got like a three, over a four. I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I appreciated them kind of going for it a little bit here. What's funny is they actually, I don't think they ever played this live until like 20 years after it came out and I think when they did play it, it felt weird. This is according to Bono and the Edge, this is one of their favorite songs of theirs, which I found kind of shocking. And um, but yeah, it's it's okay. I think it's it was it grew on me a little bit, but it just felt a little too like amorphous for me. Like I couldn't tell what it was, where it was trying to go or, or what it was trying to do. This might have been something that they pulled right out of a jam, and thought like maybe, hey, let's explore this a little bit because it just felt a little bit like unresolved.
0: Dude, I have Stony Jam as one of my notes. It seems like they all got high and were like, oh man, let's let's do something weird, man. I'm like, yeah, let's keep it on there. And again, they probably had a great time making it, and maybe that's why Bono says it's his favorite song. I don't necessarily think well, that. one of <laughs> yeah, one of one. Of. Okay, yes, um, but no, it would not be would not be my favorite song if I was in U2.
1: No, definitely not my favorite, definitely not a hit, but I thought it was an interesting example of them experimenting. And I noted again that I liked the guitar tone. It might be the same one. It's from The flies solo, but he's, he gets some cool tones out of, out of that thing.
4: I think placement of this song, too, made it hard for me uh, working through this album at least five or six times during the week is that by the time I got to this song, I was a little... And, and there's nothing like offensive that makes this album exhausting, but I think it's just the u-tuness of this <laughs> of this album made it by the time I got here, i was I was a little tired. but focusing on this made me see some precursors for Muse. Like everything about this song screams muse to me. Uh, from I guess the tones, there's like some like really fast guitar, like holding a single note, the way the melody, plays off of kind of this airy thing. It just I just got muse vibes on it. So when I kind of thought about this influencing them or or just coming before that sound, I it, it made me appreciate it a little bit more.
1: So, it's you know, we're kind of wrapping it up here and that's I'm glad you mentioned that because this record definitely had an impact. And it came at a time, just want to re-mention, that it came at a time before so much of the other music that we that has now entered the canon and the and the public mindset, all the grunge material, pretty much. And you know, you got to think about what was going on at that time. I think you too, even in those earlier '80s days, even if you don't care for that version of their sound, they were different than what the other stuff that was going on. And I think this did set, you know, it definitely influenced some other bands uh, because these these songs, this was such a successful album, and these were such big hits.
0: Yeah, didn't this album go like nine times platinum in the U.S. or something like that? Like,
1: it sold a lot. That sounds that sounds right, yeah. For something with a German title, that's, you know, that's <laughs> impressive. Okay, I think we're ready to round this one out. So I'm going to send it around the room, and we're going to cast a vote, an official vote for the official scrolls to be entered into the permanent record of this podcast is... U2's Octung Baby, a must-listen. Must you listen to it before you die? I'm gonna send this one over to Adam.
4: Yeah, so again, my caveat here is that I have not heard any of the other albums. So f- have keeping that in mind from that point of view, I don't think you need to listen to this. I think the other albums have gotta be better than this. This song this album has, you know, some good tunes on it, but I don't think it rises to the level of something you must hear. So I'm looking forward to actually listening to some of the prior albums, but it's a no for me tonight.
2: Yeah. It's, it's funny. I feel like I was like a game time decision. Like I was, I feel like I was a yes up until right now. And I, I, I think it's as I'm reflecting on situating this with some of their earlier work, which I I've never liked you to like, I have never like hated them despite having a little bit of fun at their expense tonight, but I, they've never really been my thing. And I, I do think that some of their other material Is uh, Gives you a good enough flavor for them To me this represents too much of the Even though I know this was more of a pivot point But when I think of this, The last 30 years of U2 it, I, I attach this album to that And it just gives me sort of a bad taste Frankly And so I don't think you need to listen to this album I do think you need to listen to some U2 But you know, I'm going to say no for this one
1: Wow. Rough. Rough, tough room. Okay, Phil.
3: Yeah, so this was an interesting one for me this week, because I definitely did listen to this, as I have mentioned, you know, dozens, literally dozens of times um, when I was, you know, probably in my early teen years or just before that, um... I would not have. Pers- I would. I would have bought this because "Mysterious Ways" was on the radio, and that was a cool song. Um, but I mean, it definitely brought a lot back for me. I definitely think one um, and "Mysterious Ways" are huge hits for big reasons. Um, "Who's gonna ride your wild horses?" was the one that sort of like definitely, uh, yeah. It, it like it like pulled out some nostalgia that I didn't know was in there for you two. Um, but yeah, there's also just like a lot of milk toast on here. Uh, yeah, a whole lot of Zoo Station and, uh, you know, even better than the real thing. So I am also going to pass on YouTube's 2s Octung Baby. I just...
2: Take that, Bono.
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's good. There's a couple of songs on here that are direct to the greatest hits, which is no doubt excellent. The U2's greatest hits is excellent, but... I can live without listening to this record again, and so can you.
1: Hey, Bono, does your money keep you warm at night? Does it hug you and tell you it
3: loves you? <laughs>
0: yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah. He's like, actually, I can
1: pay people to do
2: that.
0: with <laughs> My money It's great. I can pay
2: this guy to drone eighth notes on a bass.
0: <laughs> yeah, Adam Clayton probably is like, I love you guys so much. You've really just salvaged my career. Oh, so this is Tom here. I'm going to shock you guys with a no vote on this one as well. I don't deny that. I think there were some bands that were influenced by you 2 and this album specifically. I was looking at it from the standpoint of like, is this the culmination of a great career from the band? No, I don't think this is the culmination of a great career. I think that this is on the downslide of better stuff that they had done before does it point the way to importantness that this band then does from here on out? Absolutely not. Their stuff from here on out is garbage. And I somewhat almost like look at this album as they got hugely successful. They did the Zoo TV tour and then they stopped doing the type of U2 that I liked. And they became this new, because you know I think all of U2 from here on out kind of sounds like this. It's just my general impression. And so it almost sort of, took a band that I would kinda like, I didn't love, but I kinda liked, and turned it into something that I did not like. And so for that reason, I'm gonna say no.
1: Wow. Well my vote means absolutely nothing, clearly. <laughs> well that's it folks. Uh <laughs> until next time. <laughs> I can't wait for the
4: listener mail, by the way, on this one. I'm
1: very excited. I'm gonna go against the I'm gonna go against the group here. I'm gonna say it's worth listening to. I don't think it's the best U2 record and I don't think it's the most essential distillation of their sound, if in the sense of you 2 as a must-listen band, which I think is accurate. But I'm certainly glad I listened to it. I think I got a little more appreciation for them learning about how it was produced. I like when bands, especially big ones, try to shift and pivot their sound and take chances. And I think the, the person I saw doing that the most on this record was The Edge. So I appreciate that. It's definitely bloated, and it definitely has some clunkers on it and it's too long but <laughs> I think it's worth an hour of your time okay well that is that those, those details shall be entered in the sacred texts, <laughs> and you shall be judged accordingly <laughs> now all that remains I believe is for us to determine what we will be listening to this week Tommy alright so I have that albinator
0: ready to go why don't you give me some more early 90s? I feel like we've been stuck in the early 90s for a while. We did Bjork recently. I mean, we did Aretha Shore. Yeah, it was a uh, rough week for me, so let's move on to something a little bit better. <laughs> Without any further ado, drum roll please. We will be listening to... I am very happy about this. Cosmos Factory by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Mm-hmm. That's okay. a stacked album. That album's got some hits.
2: It does it also has some jams Like you know so like half. I feel like half the songs are two minutes the other half Are like 11 now oh
0: yeah Does that have
2: ramble yeah. tamble on it It does, it does. the opening track yeah, nice, ramble nice, tamble nice, yeah.
0: yeah and yeah most people don't Realize that there I heard it through the grapevine Is 11 minutes long yeah It's still
1: super duper long They took an already long song and said we need to make this Longer yeah it was pretty great <laughs> Awesome Well I look forward to that that'll be a a change in vibe for sure and i hope everyone who's listening joins us next week put on cosmos factory by credence clearwater revival and get ready for next week's podcast so that'll be about it for now did you agree with us did you not agree with us do you love you too do you hate adam clayton <laughs> let us know I don't think anyone can even have
0: opinions on Adam Clayton. Like nobody's going to be like, I'm a huge Adam Clayton fan. His base work is de- generation
1: defining. I don't
3: know, man, we're going to find out.
1: All right. But you know what? Go ahead and send us an email over at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We will, we will take it into our souls and possibly read it on the air. So please let us know your thoughts, whatever they may be, or post this to a YouTube fan site. And get us yelled at. We we welcome it. We welcome it. Okay, so for this week, that will wrap it up for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. I've been Alan.
3: And I'm Phil. In the name of Boosh.